If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast which brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Does our desire to belong to one tribe or another make conflict with others inevitable? This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers delve into tribal identities and tribal conflict. Could we do away with tribal allegiances and see ourselves as part of the same human family or a group identities based on class, race, sexuality or nationality, the only effective vehicles for political change? So as the left champions identities from sexuality to race, the right is reasserting the nation. But is identity politics good for mobilising people? Or does it create more barriers than it breaks? Asking these questions, we have political philosopher, Anglican theologian and director of the Respublica think tank, Philip Blond. He's joined by Labour MP and Shadow Women's Equality Secretary, Dawn Butler, and finally former Home Secretary and MP, and now President of the Association for Citizenship Teaching, David Blunkett. For more on this topic and much more, from feminism to morality, consciousness to tribalism, do head over to our website for our podcast playlist and latest releases at www.iai.tv and make sure you're joining the conversation by heading over to Twitter or leaving a rating review over on iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. Back now to this week's episode. Okay, well, we will uh, hear first of all from Philip Long. What is happening in the West from America uh, through throughout sort of Western and Eastern Europe? It's it's a fragmentation and a breakdown. And the successful parties are no longer to be understood on a left-right spectrum. They're actually a mixture of left and right. There are socialists who believe in leave. There are socialists who believe in remain. But leave and remain are now better predictors of who you're going to vote for than your past tribal identity. So what's really happening is, is realignment and fragmentation. And largely speaking, I want to suggest to you um, that the formulation that's taking place, and I think you know you, you got it in one, is nationalism on the one hand and extreme liberalism understood as identity politics on the other. And I want to suggest to you that neither of them ultimately, in my view, will work. Because we have been governed by extreme liberalism for, for really since since the time of Margaret Thatcher. You have extreme economic liberalism on the right, extreme social liberalism on the left. And they're a common 
project. And I always think it's incoherent to hear people on the left denouncing neoliberalism economically, but essentially upholding it socially and, and vice versa. So what is the liberal project that is now over? The liberal project is essentially a grand global project of extreme individualism. And this grand global project at first appealed to the narcissism of the 1960s and the genuine injustices that the 1960s spoke to. But what it creates is a dispensation economically that only favors those at the very, very top. Um, if you look at the global distribution, the famous elephant graph by uh, um, Branko Milanovic, he shows that really over the last 30, 40 years there's been no net gain for the vast majority of the working population from globalization. And the gain has been for the working class in the third world, whereas the working class and increasing the middle class in the first world has seen no genuine gain at all. You've seen the rise of rampant insecurity because insecurity stems from rampant individualism. And we've created on the economic level forms of insecurity that were actually unthinkable uh, in the 60s or indeed the, uh, the 70s. But on the cultural right, and culture we know outcompetes uh, uh, economics in any assessment of human behavior, uh, liberalism has essentially created a culture that oppresses majorities, that creates marginalized majorities through identity politics that are little more than middle-class power games and attempts by middle-class advocates to both virtue signal and gain power within a, a medium whereby solidarity has collapsed. So don't be surprised that nationalism is on the way back because nationalism, by those who advocate for it, is the only thing that will care for them. Nationalism, uh, by its, from the perspective it's of advocates, is the only thing that will care for those who have lost out. Whereas liberalism won't. Liberalism uh, of, of the extreme left has become an upper middle class project. And so what we've got is a project where solidarity, i.e. looking after us all, has been captured by nationalism. And the project, the right wing project of extreme individualism is now followed by both left wing parties and right wing parties. That is the new divide. That is the new debate. That is where we are. You know, politics has always been about identity. Me growing up as a, as a black woman will have very different uh, identity to, to other people growing up uh, themselves in their, in their social environment. So I think the main thing is that politics should make sense and should be about policies. And I think that's the main basis that we should uh, start from. I mean, every human being is molded by the society that they've grown up in. You're molded by how you grew up, who spoke to you, uh, the biases that you have growing up. That's, that's who we are. So you will fight for different things. I don't think there's anything uh, wrong with that. The problem is that not all identities are the same. So I think as we start to dismantle all the social barriers uh, that contribute to the disparities in society, that's when people start saying, oh my God, identity politics is bad because you are, you are 
taken away my privilege. All of a sudden, you want to take some of my privilege away, and I don't like it. The whole term identity politics just means we are doing politics. And I need to, I need to fight for things that I believe in, because that's where my passion is. And if you want to call it identity politics, call it that. OK, well, on, um, in March, I was, was um, blagged into doing something for Comic Relief with David Williams. And I had to stand up and swing leftwards and say, ladies, I still swing to the left. And I still swing to the left. And I'm tribal in political terms, tribalism in this sense, meaning having a real sense of identity with the people that I've worked with, that I've grown up with, that I share values with. And even when we are in conflict with each other about ideas or direction, we still have a sense of that common purpose. So there can be tribalism that actually is a glue that holds people together in a positive sense. And there can be identity and nationalism, which is uh, narrow and uh, exclusive and anything but what in the jargon would be called civic republicanism. So I believe in mutuality and reciprocity of trying to put the glue back in so that people do feel a sense of belonging, a sense that they have some identity with the people around them and that they will care about them as, they, as you would with an extended family. And that's not to do with borders or language or faith or even culture. It's to do with how people see each other and work with each other. Um, I, I think that the danger at the moment, and Philip has touched on it, and I heard Dawn earlier mention it before we came in, is the idea that our, our identity is exclusive to particular aspects of our life or background. Identity of gender or sexual orientation uh, or faith or of disability seems to me to be extremely dangerous because it separates out by people's very specific elements within them rather than that they have that common citizenship and coming together. And maybe we'd like to debate that because I find it really disturbing that people want to categorize by things that should not separate us. I'm therefore in favor of patriotism in the George Orwell sense rather than nationalism. I'm in favor of putting the glue back in, in building from the community, think global, act local, so that people do feel that they've got something in common and finding things that unite us rather than divide us. And doing that builds a different sort of sense of identity and belonging and a different kind of tribalism to what we see at the moment, which deliberately seeks to separate deliberately plays on people's worst instincts, deliberately intends to build up resentment uh, and uh, dislike and often hatred about other people. And in the end, that has to mean that we get people to feel that they've got something real in common, rather than that what divides them is the thing that identifies and uh, separates and creates that identity. Thank you very much. Thank you all, lots and lots for us to, uh, to talk about from what you've all said. Uh, so the question, we're going to divide our conversation into three separate 
uh, areas. And the first is, could we do away with tribal allegiances and see ourselves as part of the same human family? And, and David, what you were saying there, uh, there's more that unites us than divides us. Obviously, that is, you know, it's a, it's a commonly used phrase, but where we are right now, have we lost that overarching sense that you were talking about, about patriotism being something that could unite us, but it's given way to nationalism. So how can we, can we do away with tribal allegiances? Nationalism by its very nature, in the sense that you just described it, actually does divide people. It separates them by not just history. I mean, after all, Jonathan Swift called England a mongrel nation. Um, don't tell Nigel Farage. Um, <laughs> But it was, and it is, because we are a mix of everything that has happened in our past. But that is quite separate to feeling a sense of that identity that does hold us together, that wants to share uh, in common the things that make life worthwhile. And you can build that outwards. I, I've always felt that if you had a sense of your own uh, well-being and your, your own sense of uh, place in the community, at that point, you can open people's minds to feeling that they're not under attack, that they're not at risk, that the rapidity of change around them isn't going to destroy their, their own sen sense of well-being. And therefore, they will open their minds to other people. We, we opened a multilingual children's library in Sheffield in November, and the joy of those children sharing reading, sharing songs, sharing, sharing storytelling was just wonderful. And what struck me at the time, and it struck me when I was education secretary, is children don't arrive with preconceptions about the world around them. It's we as adults that inflict that on them. And we should take a look at our children and ask, what are we doing to them when we foster that bitterness, that resentment, uh, that uh, looking at other people with an eye of separation. And Dawn, I mean, on that, there are so many ways that society has moved forward and there is integration. There are good examples like David citing there of, of people being brought together. But when you look at the state of politics right now and where we are with Brexit, have mainstream politicians effectively squandered the ability to, to bring communities together and push aside the, the things that divide them rather than looking to, to the overarching principle of being part of a, a bigger patriotic family? So this is where people use the term identity politics to suit their own needs. So people have used Brexit as a tool to divide communities. And, you know, people who voted Leave to Remain, we shouldn't be um, fighting each other. But where I think that identity politics matters in, in terms of uh, when same-sex partners, for instance, are beaten up walking down the road because they're holding hands, then identity politics matters in terms of fighting for the rights of people. When uh, women are paid 18% less than men, then we need identity politics to ensure that that pay gap closes. When black people are 24 times more likely to be stopped and searched by police, then you need identity politics to tackle that. What we don't need, and I think that's where the nationalism comes in, where people saying, well, you know, you are a traitor. You have, you know, 
defied the will of the, the people. That to me is using the term identity politics to sow division so that people hate each other for reasons that you don't need to. So they're using it deliberately to sow division. And somehow we have to bring the country back together. And I think the more we talk about identity politics, the more we talk about things that are different, uh, the worse it's going to, to get. So fighting for equality is very different from identity politics. And I think that's where it gets very, very muddied and confused. Uh, Philip, you influenced... You were a big influence on David Cameron, the, the big society, the idea of the, the big family, you know, the local projects that bring people together. But we are now where we are. What went wrong? The origin of big society was I wanted working class people to own. I wanted them to have assets, ownership, agency and control. And I wanted that to be cultural and economic. And I think from the left to the right, people, I think, would uphold that. What happened is we had, uh, as soon as Cameron was elected, within six months, he gave up and returned to Thatcherism. And we had the austerity project, and then we had the idea that big society was akin to a tombola event on, on a Sunday when working class uh, people might help pick up litter in the village. You know, it's just hopeless, hopeless. So, so I think that... The tragedy of Cameron is he promised but never delivered uh, a new communitarian project. I'm a communitarian. I think you can't heal any specific wound unless you have solidarity first. So, so my point would be is that identity, and this is perhaps where I differ from Dawn, um, is you don't stop people attacking uh, gay people or being racist or the gender pay gap through identity politics. Identity politics will ensure that continues because identity politics means that gay people have nothing to do with me. Black people have nothing to do with me. The advancement of women has nothing to no, do with me. No, but that's not the point I was no, making. No, I understand. I, the I, point, I, the point I, but the point I was making is when there is disparities, you have to fight for those. No, so I, if you're mobilizing on identity for equality purposes, that's very different. And it doesn't work, than, Dawn. That's my but, point. That's where I differ from you. So what I'm saying is, is you can't get there from, you can't get where we both want to get to from where you, you think we should proceed. I think the human emancipatory project is, uh, and here I agree with David, is the project of the common good, what we all hold in common first. And nobody has offered that really since the time of Mrs. Thatcher, either from the left or from the right. And unless and until we do that, we do that first, we will not achieve all the social justice projects that people talk about. So, what, so are you saying that people are pigeonholed in their individual groups of want of seeing equality for their own group you, and not Yeah, because you get, in, you get into the difficulty of you saying, my experience is so extreme, so unique, I can't communicate it to you. You, you said that there were inequalities, gross inequalities, and that by identifying them, we should all come together, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. That, that I mean, I, I I'm not gay, but I yeah. fight for gay rights because I believe in equality. Yeah. 
So there's a very, that's, so that's the opposite to what you're saying. I'm not saying that it's got nothing to do with me. I'm saying it's got everything to do with me no, because I believe in equality. But you're making a category mistake because you can't. But you just, what did you, I'm still confused about the Thatcher argument. Because, because you can't. Did he, can't. did he say Thatcher was a socialist? Look, I, I, let, let me try and be very clear because obviously you're struggling with what I'm saying. And, um, and, um, Actually, you might argue that certain aspects of Mrs. Thatcher were socialist, such as handing, uh, creating mass property ownership, but then not socialist because she didn't because build she didn't... any social housing to replace it. And that was so going to be my second sentence. And that, <laughs> and I'm glad you're Good job thinking... I'm here then, isn't it? I'm extremely grateful that you're making my points for me. Just, the point I want to make is a serious one is how do we get to where I suspect all three of us on this panel want to get to? Curve for the other, solidarity with the other. What I'm trying to say is you can't get there via identity politics. So if you look at who voted for Trump, the third most important factor was hatred of political correctness. You look at who votes for Brexit and who votes for nationalism, it's because those who are arguing for identity politics are overwhelmingly upper middle class and they're actually forms of language games that elevate the upper middle class and denigrate, in effect and in practice, working class people. So I think we need to recover the universal project first, think that, and from that, all good things will flow. So can, can I just say, I think that's bullshit who voted for Trump. <laughs> who voted for Trump is not people that were against um, political correctness. The people who voted for Trump, there was a Ku Klux Klan open march just this week. Those are the people that voted for Trump. And but those are people, people those are the people that he were, those are the specific people Trump. that he were appealing to. That was his specific appeal. He knew what he was doing. Oh. He knew he was appealing to the very lowest common denominator. Uh, was that what he was appealing? I can't even say, I'm so angry. <laughs> Denominator. So are, are you saying, Dawn, that the black voters who voted Trump are, are pro-Klux Klan? Are you saying that Hispanic voters who voted for Trump, because they did in their millions? Um, he's wrong, actually. Uh, <laughs> you can... I'm happy we to, need a to So they did it because they felt upper middle class democratic interests didn't serve their interests. Ah, that's a different that, matter. That, that, no, that, and that, some of Trump's voters were black, were Hispanic, um, and also were women some as well. Were, but that's not who he was appealing to. That's not what his message was. His message was well, solely you're, you're a message of hate. It. You're and misreading it. Oh, I'm misreading it. I think we are going to move on to our next <laughs> session. <laughs> our next section, which is what makes identity based on sexuality or gender something to be celebrated whilst white nationalism is feared? Well, they're, dif they're different things. I mean, the... the exclusivity of saying that colour or class has uh, s something that excludes other people from being part of the common endeavour is wrong. The premise of the question is very difficult because it, it poses something that shouldn't exist against something that is about equality that we've just been talking about that we should build on. Let me just give you an example. When I was in government, I was actually responsible for establishing the Disability Rights Commission and extending the Disability Discrimination Act, amongst other things. Yeah, but I, I said, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to empower the, the appropriate minister in my team, and I'm going to ask them to make this an issue 
for every member of parliament, for every councillor, for every political activist, because the idea that I should be the spokesperson for, dis for disability would disempower me, because I would be identified by my ownership of a guide dog, not my politics and values and what I wanted to achieve. And it's possible to espouse what you need to know and how you can encourage and support other people in taking on that inequality and injustice without making it exclusive to the people who are facing that injustice. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I agree. <laughs> I thought you were. <laughs> In, um, we've obviously had, we've had Me Too, we've had issues around uh, gender pay. Um, in addressing one inequality, is there a danger that others then feel like they're being marginalized. I mean, for instance, in the workplace at the moment, um, you can sometimes hear, I mean, I'm not talking personally, but I mean, you know, it's, it's something that is out there that's being talked about that white men are not necessarily gonna be in the front line for a job when something comes up because there is a drive to, to redress balances which, which need to be redressed. But is there a danger that it ends up leaving others feeling marginalized? So, so, Yes, there could possibly be a danger of that. But when you start from the premise of fairness and equality, then there shouldn't be any fear of that. The fear of that grows from when you are trying to tackle the structural barriers, the injustices, and the privilege that presents itself at almost every situation. And it's when people feel that their privilege is being taken away from them, they get nervous. But if you know you are, if you know you are there uh, from your own merits, doing something in the right way and for the right reasons, it shouldn't be an issue. So yes, the answer is yes, it could be seen that way. But ultimately, you can't make policy around that. You have to base your policy on fairness, equality, and justice. And once you base it on that, you know you're basing it on a solid foundation. Because at the moment, lots of things happen because of privilege, because of old boys club, because of it's who you know, not what you know. Because of all of those things, other people get excluded. And so that's why we need to build policies based on fairness. And the, and the way you do it matters. Do it, doing po why politics really matters and why people who are in the forefront, in the, in the front line of politics, need to know what they're doing and how to do it. It's a statescraft issue. You can see in the States, the, the reason the Democrats lost the presidential election and are still in the, the position where they don't hold the Senate or the Supreme Court or many of the crucial governorships 
is that very often they they talk over the heads of the people that they expect to vote for them. They, they address issues in a way and in a language that people can't relate to. In one small way, Philip, I'm sort of coming back to the point that you were raising. A second example would be back in 2001, I came into the Home Office just on the back of the Bradford, Oldham and Burnley riots. In Oldham and Burnley, the reports that came out afterwards showed some very interesting things about the way in which national and local government had behaved. Money had been put in in Oldham exclusively to a particular community which led the neighbouring community to believe that they'd been ignored. The community that felt they were ignored were almost exclusively white. The community, quite rightly because of their disadvantage and, uh, and, and the, the real deep uh, inequality that existed there, had received what funding was available for uh, urban programmes and for renewal. Now, what should have happened is the two communities should have been brought together and the money available should have been enhanced to make sure that each felt that their concerns and their deprivation were dealt with and they hadn't been. And that led to bitterness and resentment, which then feeds on itself. So yeah. we've got to get it right. You've just got to do the politics right. Yeah, and include include Inclusion. include people yeah. in the journey. Yeah. How, how difficult is that, Philip? Um, because yeah, I mean, what, what, there's a, a drive for equality, but as we're hearing, that there's fallout, and does it inevitably become a never-ending cycle, or I mean, is a is a completely equal society a, merit, a complete meritocracy, utopian, or is it achievable? There's really interesting work done on the concept of free rider. And apparently even human babies can detect free riders, uh, someone who comes in and nicks the sweets and doesn't contribute to the play, and, and exclude them from the group. This is almost a human universal. And if you look back at sort of the work done by very good left-wing uh, sociologists, the New East End, etc. What happened in welfare is when you moved from a time-served position, you know, council waiting lists for homes, to a need-based position, new entrants always outcompeted those in terms of need who'd been on the housing list for a long, long time. And so what you created in places like London was widespread, just as David spoke about Oldham, widespread indigenous white antagonism vis-a-vis -vis migrants because they haven't paid in yet they're out competing us for goods and I think that this is why you've got to have something that speaks to to human anthropology which is the notion of of a fair go and the notion of contributory welfare that people pay in it's it's really interesting if you look at the statistics on migration that was the biggest driver of of, of Brexit for example where you have successful integration projects, support for migrants rises. But where you have the, the type of entrance where people perceive whether or not it's right, that there's no, state, there's no pay, pay in to the communal pot, hostility is actually quite rampant. So I think once again, we've got to form the, um, the sense that that nobody, I would suggest, absent sort of what David's talking about, because I know he, he does do this, 
The tragedy is, is nobody on the left or the right is doing, on the non-nationalist left or the non-nationalist right, is doing the project of solidarity. The project of solidarity is being done by what you would call nationalists. Now, everybody laughed when I talked about Trump voters, but if you actually look at the facts, 28% of Hispanic voters voted for Trump. 27% of Asian voters voted for Trump. 8% of black voters voted for Trump. So unless you think, oh, they're all mad or they're stupid, it cannot be the case that Trump is just appealing to the Ku Klux Klan, right? That doesn't pass intellectual muster. What, is, what they are doing and what they're doing from Viktor Orban, from uh, the Poles, Alternative for Deutschland, Front National, is they are the only project talking solidarity. And overwhelmingly, they are the su supported by working class votes. Those on, on the left and the right who don't talk solidarity are overwhelmingly middle class, who unbeknownst to themselves are following individualist projects that will not help working class so people. So I want to bring in Dawn, because so I think Dawn well, will take issue with well, people not talking you, solidarity. Can you, imagine, can you imagine the Labour Party not talking solidarity? Yeah, I, I, I see it every I mean, day. But what, 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 happens, yeah. what happens when you have debates like this and you... Um, and you talk about it in this academic form in terms of identity politics. What happens when you have a alpha white male on the panel and you disagree? How do you know? No, no, listen. How do you listen, know? Listen, and you disagree, you will turn around and say, as you said, you, I don't understand what you're saying. And so that's what you've said to me, is that I don't understand what you're saying because I disagreed with what you said. Now, if you think that Trump didn't appeal to a certain group of people, then I think you're mistaken. He knew exactly what he was doing. That's why he went to the smaller states and, and spoke the language of hate, not solidarity, of hate in a certain way to build, to build, to build, his, to build his base. That's why you have somebody like Stacey Abrams uh, trying in Atlanta to, to actually speak of solidarity no, and I to actually try and unite both Democrats and Republicans and talk about a national uh, level in terms of making sure that every vote counts. So regardless of who you vote for, ensuring that every vote counts, that's true nationalism in what's good for the country uh, rather than what's good for individuals. So that is the difference in terms of when people talk about um, identity politics or nationalization, but everybody, everybody talks about it in a term that suits them. And that is the issue and the problem. So I do have issue with some of what you have said in regards to how you've identified identity politics, because I don't see it in those terms. And I talk about solidarity, and the Labour Party talks about solidarity all the time. My manifesto was built on solidarity. That's the whole premise of the Labour Party in terms of solidarity and for the many and not the privileged And that's absolutely few. true. We exactly just need to practice nature. it a bit better. That's <laughs> Okay, we'll move on to our, our third theme, the final theme, before you get to put your questions to the panelists. And the uh, question is, can identity politics be inclusive and distance itself from tribalism? Dawn, do you think there is a, a sensitivity, sometimes a squeamishness uh, from people, which means that they worry 
perhaps about issues around cultural appropriation, around how to, how to just be with other people. See, that's what I think about we need to break down the barriers. It's easy to just, it is easy to just be. It's easy. People talk about political correctness and then they create this whole thing about Muslims don't like Christmas and, you know, they don't want to have Christmas trees, you know, and they won't send you a Christmas card and all of that stuff isn't, isn't true. And actually, the, the thing that Philip said in regards to... Um, in regards to communities that live side by side with other people, it breaks down those barriers because of your lived experience of living next to somebody who is different from yourself. So that does break down barriers. But there really isn't anything to fear from somebody who isn't the same as you. In fact, there's something to be embraced. We are limited but we by live, our but own in, in many communities, knowledge. do people live that way? Or are communities still quite segregated? I think it's very mixed. I'm the MP for Brent Central, and that's the most diverse community in, uh, in Europe. And actually, people are very mixed. And when uh, the BMP wanted to make a video of how um, Muslims were taking over the world, they came to film in Wembley, and everyone was telling them to, to, to do this. And when Theresa May wanted to sow division, she uh, sent the van saying the go home vans through my constituency in Brent and we got it stopped. So because the thing is, is that we don't want to sow any hate and division in our communities. There's enough to worry about and there's enough to deal with and we deal with it better as a community fighting for fairness and equality. And I will always go back to fairness and equality. I think if you if you pay your fair share, then nobody will worry. You know, if you're working and you get paid a fair wage, then everybody's happy. It's about fairness and equality. And that is what we have to go back to. And there's nothing to, to equality. I always say equality is equality. I fight for other people's equality. It doesn't diminish my fight for my equality. If you're being discriminated against because you're a white man, I will fight for your equality. If you're being discriminated against because you're, I will fight for your equality because equality is equality. And, and just, I mean, obviously the, there are equal laws in place, which mean that it, it shouldn't still be an issue that there are issues around some well, of these things had, but uh, we've had the race relations act 50 years of the race relations act and then we had to update it 40 years uh, 10 years later because it only applied to premises then we had to update it that we've had the equality act 2010 and now we have to improve that so, because every time we have uh, an equality act it doesn't quite solve the problem okay so i want to ask david then um why is it that in 2019 the laws that have been put in place you know a long time ago in many cases still aren't being properly delivered has that been a failure of politicians to give clear leadership well law, law can go so far it can prevent the most vicious and uh, upfront visible uh, extremes of people being refused accommodation because they're gay or because they're black or because they're disabled. But it can't, by itself, change people's minds. And I just pick up the point that Dawn made at the very end about fear. Uh, and Aaron Bevan actually stole the phrase, but he, he made it very popular. It was um, Roosevelt who actually said originally, the, the, one, the, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And quite often in communities, 
People whip up fears. Uh, they build on genuine concerns about the speed of change, about how the world is altering. Look, look, I, this is a generalization, but London, in the terms we're debating tonight, is almost a country within a country. The, the multi-ethnic nature of London, the acceptance of that within communities in London is different to, to what it is in other parts of the country. My, my experience is that the people who were most racist, uh, uh, xenophobic and uh, vicious about difference, about the difference they saw from themselves, were people who lived just outside areas of multi-ethnic living rather than those who were in it. So you're right, the experience of it changes people's view. But we've got to get inside their heads and change how they feel and think because you can suppress for so long, and we did, and then something comes along like Brexit and it lets the genie out of the bottle and people behave and speak differently over the last three years than they did before. They say things that would have been unacceptable. They put things on social media that are just completely outrageous. That if they'd, if they'd put it in a local newspaper or put it on a wall, they'd have been dealt with. So your answer, John, about law is you can't enforce what goes on inside somebody's heads. You have to set about, including citizenship teaching in schools, which we did bring in, but has only been implemented spasmodically. Head teachers who don't believe in it, in my view, should be, well, let me be very careful what I <laughs> say, should be dealt with by Ofsted in terms of the view of the performance of the school, because not only does it help uh, uh, with uh, improving the, the grades that children get, because it does, it's provable uh, through uh, the NFER research, but it actually also is about putting that glue back in. And if we don't start with schools and then build on it, the citizenship uh, programs for those who seek naturalization, the people who get the best citizenship programs, the people who get instilled in them the sense of identity and belonging are the people who are seeking naturalization in our country because they have to go through the test, they take the cere ceremony that we set in place uh, 16 years ago. They feel, well, they feel what we should be instilling in the population as a whole, which is that we belong to this country and we work together for its improvement. So just one... I just wanted to quote... Um, to you, Philip, as our final question before we throw this open to the audience. Um, the author of Political Tribes, Amy Chua, has said that the great enlightenment principles of modernity, liberalism, secularism, secularism, rationality, equality, free markets do not provide the kind of tribal group identity that human beings crave. Is that ultimately where we are? Uh, uh, yes, and, and also um, it doesn't provide for especially for the poor. This, this whole agenda, I would argue, hasn't delivered. And when we say things like equality, we all applaud, but we don't know what we mean because equality begs questions that it never answers. So if I say, are you all in favor of equality? Almost in unison, you would say yes, but in practice, it's never true. If you look, for instance, at abortion legislation, you can abort a child with a cleft palate almost up to the point of birth. That isn't true 
for somebody who isn't deemed to be uh, suffering. The point is, is equality begs the question. Same with rights. Rights don't tell you what is right. There's a prior discourse about which justice you're going to pursue and equality always tends to serve the most powerful lobby group for which justice you're going to pursue. We've had 20 years of quasi-identity politics that, that don't serve the interests of increasing, the number, increasing numbers of the disadvantaged. You all laughed earlier when I said that political correctness drove people to Trump. It was the second most telling predictor of who voted for Trump after being a Republican. And that is because who Trump aimed at, as well as being a racist campaign, I agree with Dawn about that, is the people who are excluded from the type of equality debates. Because equality begs questions that it doesn't answer and it always serves specific interests. Because because the decision over who's equal or what should be equal aren't made by those people who are subject to those judgments. No, they're made by the privilege. They're made by that. They make, they're normally made by white men with privilege. And the people driving identity politics are almost always white people with privilege. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Philosophy for Our Times. The podcast was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas and it was hosted by me, Anna Carey, and our guests this week were Philip Blonde, David Blunkett and Don Butler. For more on today's topic, have a listen to A Tribal World with Julie Bindle, Brendan O'Neill, Yasmin Alibi-Brown and Simon Glendinning asking whether society and community are good or they can end up being fortresses of privilege. Now you've finished the episode, please do let us know what you thought and head over to iTunes and give us a rating or review. Tell anyone you know that might be interested and of course make sure you're subscribed to never miss an episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Thanks again and tune in next week for more debates and talks from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas.